This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. I'm your host for today, Carla Nappi. I recently had the great pleasure to talk with Philip Kitcher from Berlin. Um, he's in Berlin right now, and he joined us via Skype about his book, Science in a Democratic Society, that came out with Prometheus Books in 2011. Now, this is a very ambitious, very rich book that speaks to not just the philosophy of science, but also um, science, technology, and society, uh, the ideas about democracy, what it is, what it can be, how we ought to think about it and define it. And it speaks to also the field of science education in a way. Um, He has really interesting ideas in this book about um, curricular reform, about what it can look like for the public to learn about and inform science with a capital S. Um, And it's it's just an extraordinarily clear um, and very compelling read. We had a great time talking about it. um, And I hope you enjoy the interview. Hi, Philip. Hi, Carla. We're here today to talk with Philip Kitcher from Berlin um, right now about his book, Science in a Democratic Society, and that came out with Prometheus Books in 2011. Now, this is a book that I'm very excited um, to talk with you about. It's um, extraordinarily rich, and I think the consequences of this work and of not just the theory, but the very specific suggestions that you're putting forth have really wide-ranging importance, not just for the sciences or science with a capital. S, but I think for all of us who do some kind of research that we might consider in relation to uh, translation of knowledge or broader public impact and sort of really thinking of ways to engage that relationship into the most basic elements of what it is even to conceive a research program and think about what it looks like and what it can look like to pursue that. So thanks very much. And thanks for making the time to talk with us about it today. Well, thank you. Thank you for your interest. Thank you for your enthusiasm. I just want to add to what you just said is that it does seem to me that anybody who's doing research ought to worry about how they contribute to wider social goals. Um, I I follow Dewey here, who uh, thinks that people who pursue investigations are in fact part of a social division of labor, that they have something to contribute. And I think all people who do research ought to be reflecting on the nature of the contributions that they make or might make. Absolutely. So I, I think that the, the, the reflections that, that you were suggesting that might uh, uh, apply to those who think of themselves as, uh, as have making an impact just apply to everybody because everybody should think of themselves as potentially making an impact. Absolutely. And I think this one of the thing, the great things that this book does um, for a reader um, engaged with these ideas is to encourage us to think about this, not just at the stage that many of us do, which is, you know, you're sitting down with your funding application. You've got that mm-hmm. section, broader impact. How do you justify after you've already yeah. decided what you want to work on, but really incorporating that into the very fabric of what you think about as you know, your job as a researcher um, in relation to society? So, Philip, can you start us off by saying a little bit about what brought you to this particular topic of science and democracy? And I know this is a broad question and you've been working on this for some time, but is there anything that sticks out as particularly um, germinal for you in beginning? Well, it's a long process. I'm a very slow learner and it takes me a long time to change my mind about things. And uh, some of my critics over the years probably would like to have seen me make progress faster than I have. 
Uh, it's taken me a very long time to move away from the kind of philosophy of science in which I was originally trained towards a more socially embedded and socially relevant view about um, scientific research. And um, that really began in the 1990s when I was asked if I would uh, um, advise the Library of Congress on the Human Genome Project. And that led to a book called The Lives to Come, which was about uh, the impact of uh, various new genetic technologies on human life and human society. That got me rethinking things. I then wrote a book, Science, Truth, and Democracy, in 2001, and that extended things further. But it was still, I was still being, in a way, dragged, kicking and screaming into thinking about science as socially embedded. And um, over the course of the past decade, that that sense really dawned on me in a way that I might have picked up earlier on. I might have picked it up from other people in science studies. I might have picked it up from my friend and fellow philosopher Helen Longino, for example. I mean, there are there are people who were doing similar sorts of things from whom I might have learned more more quickly. But I hope I eventually got the message. And so my views have, have, have evolved really during the course of the first decade or so of this century. And um, from when Prometheus Books asked me to write a book for them, uh, I, I wanted to do this. I wanted really to bring these, this set of ideas to fruition. Mm-hmm. To try to get a sense of how I thought that science should function in a democratic society, to clear up some misunderstandings about science, about democracy, about their relation, and also to attend to some very important specific problems that I see us as facing. Mm-hmm. And are there specific ways you can point to or that um, sort of stand out for you in which your thinking about these problems has evolved from the, the time when you published Science, Truth, and Democracy in 2001? And I ask um, specifically because you do mention this in the book as um, sort of a starting point or an important point, at least, along the way to developing what's in this book. I would say that Science, Truth, and Democracy sort of rather reluctantly backed into a domain um, it started with issues about science and truth, and then it said, oh, by the way, <laughs> there's this other sort of stuff that needs to be contended with. That came to seem to me to seem more and more uh, unsatisfactory. I began to see that, that the idea of science and values is something that might be tacked on at the end of a book or a course or something like that. It's just the wrong way to look at it. Values and science is the way to look at it, okay? And so the values come first. And and partly this was the result of some work I was doing at the same time on thinking about ethics as a naturalistic human endeavor. And that also fed into it. Partly it was also the result of getting to know more about various kinds of scientific disputes and scientific kinds of possibilities. Um, I've been much influenced over the last decade by reflections on the debates about climate change, and that's become more and more a central part of my thinking about science and its role in society, about genetically modified organisms, about the role of biotechnology in society, about the ongoing controversy about evolution, etc., etc., etc. And it seemed to me that I needed a much more systematic way of thinking about all of the aspects of examples like these, and that that was... I mean, I just feel that that we've that we as a um, not only as a nation but uh, as an intellectual community worldwide have just been held by a, a very misguided and distorted picture of scientific activity. Mm-hmm. And the, mentioning the importance of um, the the fact that this is a study that very explicitly speaks to problems not. Worldwide, so not just in America, not just in the U.S., I think is a very important part of this um, as well. So this is not just about science and democracy as sort of a implicit code for science in the U.S. This is very much yeah. a study that very explicitly engages um, global context. If we can, you know, talk about the global. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I don't think any society has got this right. I mean, right. I think there are particular problems in the United States that come from particular sources of distrust, but there are sources of distrust uh, of similar nature in in other countries that have, um, you know, rich scientific research. Right. Right. Absolutely. So this is actually a perfect um, way to get us into the body of the book. 
Um, the, the introduction starts off by, and I'll just sort of lay this out very briefly for listeners, um, proposing that the book is going to look at the problem of integrating expertise with democratic values. And these are two themes or two clusters of themes that are going to persist throughout all of the chapters of the book. Um, you lay out for us four major causes of this problem, this complex problem, um, and we'll, we'll talk about these um, or many of these in the context of the the chapters as we move through the book. Um, one is an oversimplified idea of science as being somehow value-free or being sort of ideally value-free. Um, one is that, a, or another one is a conviction that, as you say, fruitful discussions of values are impossible. Then there's a third um, issue of an oversimplified idea of democracy as just involving, I think you said, when people go to the polls and emerge waving ink-stained fingers in the air, and that's an image that's going to stay with me. Um, and then finally, and this is something that um, is going to occupy us for much of the book, um, is a, a failure to understand that the system of public knowledge is contingent. Um, and, and really uh, sort of the importance of pointing to a system of public knowledge as being crucial to how we think about um, values and science and the, yeah. the importance of this for any kind of democratic society. That's a very good summary. Okay. Well, it's mostly your summary. <laughs> so mostly, you, this is mostly, and it's one of the great things for listeners who haven't um, had the opportunity to read the book yet. And I think um, you should, for listeners out there, it's a book that's very firmly um, a philosophy of knowledge, of science, of democracy, but it's written in an extraordinarily accessible manner. And it, the, the argument is very, very clearly laid out all along the way. And so it's extraordinarily accessible. You don't have to have any uh, philosophical training to be able to get a lot out of this book. Now, um, as we move now to the, this particular um, elaborations of these um, initial problems that you set out or the, these factors that you set out at the beginning, um, one of the things I want to ask you, there are a number of thinkers and works that repeatedly emerge um, over the course of the discussion that seem, at least from the citations here and from your discussion in this book, to have been formative in some way in shaping the way you think about these problems. And you've already mentioned Dewey. Um, I'm thinking specifically of Evelyn Fox Keller comes up a lot. Um, Conway and Oreskes book, 2010, I think comes up a lot. Um, can you talk a little bit about some of the major influences that you found in shaping the ideas that ultimately took their um, final shape, or at least took a concrete shape, this, you know, who knows if it's their final shape, but took shape. Yeah, yeah. Well, one is um, large parts of the science studies movement over the past 30 or 40 years. I mean, I, I, I learned an enormous amount um, from Thomas Kuhn and successors to Thomas Kuhn. Um, Kuhn was probably the person who got me interested in doing philosophy of science in the first place when I read his uh, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, now 50 years old, and, um, and it made an enormous impact on me. But I spent a lot of the early part of my career, in a sense, fighting with him because I was reading the book in a very narrow way, as most philosophers of science did. And the same goes for the, the sociology of knowledge movements, for various movements of feminist um, thinking. I mean, there's been a tendency to overreact, say these, are, these people are vulgar relativists, they don't have any place for scientific objectivity. I haven't abandoned scientific objectivity, but I have come to read people like Kuhn, um, like some of the of some feminist scholars, like some people in the social studies of science movement, more charitably than I did earlier, to see them as really advancing important things. Perhaps they have sometimes been unclear about what they were doing, but I've found more value in their work recently. Partly that's the result of the extraordinary influence of Dewey on me. Uh, Dewey's pragmatism has made just a huge impact on me over the last decade. And I owe, I owe that to uh, a very great uh, philosopher who became a very dear friend, Sidney Morgenbesser, who died, uh, as you probably know, some years ago. But in the years immediately before his death, I talked with him extensively on pretty much a weekly basis. And that was that was really, really helpful for me in, in, in developing some of these ideas. 
And uh, now I owe a lot to a lot of people. One person whom I think perhaps I haven't given enough credit to in the book is a young woman philosopher named Heather Douglas, who I think has made really very good case um, for the limited character of the value-free ideal in, in science. So I regard myself in this book as um, not, as it were, sort of going completely uh, originally in a new direction, but articulating themes in the work of a lot of pe people who come before me, perhaps in a way that wouldn't be entirely obvious unless you've made the kind of intellectual journey that I've I've been making in the last decades. Mm -hmm. I think that um, that the importance of that theme also resonates in the content of what you're saying, as well as in the method of how you're saying it. This idea that um, um, progress pro in knowledge making is not about autonomy; that we perhaps have this um, ideal of uh, thinking and research as this autonomous, individualistic kind of um, endeavor, and that I think one of the important points that comes up throughout the book is the importance of cooperation, the importance of dialogue, the importance of conversation and empathy, and I think what you're describing right now in terms of your methodology and the kinds of influences that are leading you to, to make this is a perfect example of that. Well, thank you. But one thing, one thing I would say is that, and this relates to your fourth theme about the contingency of public knowledge, uh, is that I have come to, to, to think about research and about scientific work in a completely different way. I mean, the, the Royal Society of the 17th century set itself up to be men, uh, privileged men, because if tradespeople were admitted, then they might be motivated by vulgar motives like making money instead of pure curiosity. So the, a small group of privileged men were going to find out things about nature that interested them. They could never have foreseen, and their contemporaries could never have foreseen, that there would be this institution in the 20th and 21st centuries, science, which would play such an enormously vital role in, in the lives of societies, of nations, of individuals, and so forth. And yet, yeah, this idea of, as it were, disinterested curiosity and my doing the things that I want to promote has persisted into the, into the 21st century. And I think we should have a different image. I think we should see researchers as part of an enormous team, as part of a division of labor contribute something important to society, should acknowledge that, and that should actually be, in a sense, the foundation of the integration of scientific values with democratic values. Mm -hmm. That's the point at which expertise really has to be integrated with democracy, I think. We need to learn from one another, and we need, as it were, to be responsible to one another in the things we find out ways we find them out, so that the information that each of us acquires is valuable for others. So as a vision of this is absolutely crucial to society, I think many of the problems that afflict contemporary democracies or the nations that think of themselves as contemporary democracies are problems that arise from uh, failures of knowledge, failures of knowledge on large parts of the public, on, you know, Failures of knowledge sometimes on the part of everybody. Failures of synthesis, failures of dialogue, and failures of certain kinds of responsibility for acquiring, certifying, and transmitting knowledge. That's what we want a system of public knowledge to do, so that the citizens can be well-informed, and when they make their choices, they can make choices that further the things that they most deeply care about. Right. This became very clear to me, I must say, with respect to the climate change, where, um, you know, it, it does seem to me that um, if people really understood the risks that are being placed on their grandchildren, people who will live, say, 40 years hence, by the various kinds of practices in which we now engage, then they would get beyond this impasse at which we seem to be stuck and start a dialogue on how we might do something to meet those threats. Now, it might turn out that the economic consequences of taking those steps 
are themselves horrendous. That has to be, I think, admitted as a possibility. But we should be trying to, to think systematically and seriously as a society about this, not either dismissing the problem or marginalizing it. So, and by a society, I mean it's the global human society. We've only got one planet, and we share it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and one of the, um, it seems that um, one of the themes that recurs is a way to start to get there. And um, the climate change is one of the examples that um, you talk about. Uh, and you, you mentioned some of the others, evolutionary theory, biomedical research, um, worries about genetically modified foods and, and so on and so forth. One of the ways that you um talk about getting there is by creating a situation whereby um, the transmission of scientific knowledge to a broader public who are in the position to make informed decisions and have informed conversations um, is developed. Um, So you raised the idea early on um, of the division of epistemic labor is one mm-hmm. way to get here and as one principle, in fact, of uh, democ- democracy and democratic values. Can you say yeah. a little bit about that, this idea of the division of epistemic labor? I think this is incredibly ancient. I think all societies get this. I mean, imagine a bunch of hunters and gatherers roaming around together about, say, let's say 50 of them. I mean, those who roam around the, 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 um, the environment uh, looking for roots or um, looking for water or looking for, for potential prey animals, whatever, um, surely report to one another on what they've seen. They have a responsibility to report sincerely and honestly. They've also got a responsibility to look for the things that are of interest to other members of the community, not stand there idly admiring the view, but to you know keep a lookout to see if there are particularly dangerous places where other members of their band might wander or particular resources that might be useful. Now that's very, very old. And this idea of of expertise is distributed within a community has probably been inherited by all societies. And um, the problem arises when you think about this uh, a society in which, in a certain sense, each member has an equal say in what happens and has the right to put forward proposals about what should happen. How do you integrate expertise, individual bits of expertise, with that? It's not difficult in a band of hunters and rat gatherers. It's very difficult when the, 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 the ways in which the society is threatened and the ways in which it has uh, you know, possibilities for the future are extremely complex and in which individual experts may know something about that or it may be only a team of experts of, from various specialties that together know, could know something about that. So it's that integration, getting stopping debate about something so that we can get on with the fruitful advancing of policy and combining that with um, the idea that we all have a you know a chance to express our own opinions in formulating policy, it's very hard, and it's very very hard once you reach a situation as we have done, where in many important areas trust between the scientific community and the broader public breaks down. Now, one of the components of the explanation that you just gave also um, shares some characteristics with one of the um, major points that you're making later on in the next chapter, which is this point that, um, and I'll ask you about this, um, for virtually all our history as a species, as you say, um, we've been engaged in an ethical project. Now, I'm going to ask you about what what does this mean, this ethical project, in a moment, but before I get to that... um, what, what you just said shares with the explanation you give of the importance of this ethical project, um, what that shares with this is a, a reliance on and a place for an understanding of history. Um, and historical development as being a crucial part of the justification and the explanation of um, this system that you're giving us. And this is a particularly interesting point um, to, to raise, or this is a particularly interesting point in the book for those of us engaged in something like a project of making or 
trying to find ways to make history and philosophy of science speak to each other in a larger conversation. Um, because this is, it seems to be that what you're doing here is trying to use history and philosophy together as a way of speaking to each other. I mean, in, in what way do you find and why do you find um, a history or a historical explanation as a component of thinking about these problems that's useful to you? What makes history so, important and useful? It's a, terrific, it's a terrific question. It's also a terrifically complicated question. I actually think uh, that the first sentence that the structure of scientific revolutions uh, should be, as it were, you know, written up all over the place for us to contemplate uh, as we go around the world. Uh, I'm going to probably misquote it, but it's, it's something like this. History of conceived as more than the repository of anecdote and chronology might um, replace or no, might transform the image of science by which we are possessed. Okay, now I don't think that just holds true for science. I think it holds true for all sorts of areas of human practice, mm -hmm. including ethics, democracy, the relations between science and democracy, lots of stuff. I think understanding the history of complex human social practices is absolutely vital. So I think, you know, Darwin was a, a wonderful innovator, but I think his most central insight in a historicist century was to say, we can understand the character of living in living organisms in terms of their ancestry. Mm -hmm. History matters. I think history matters to our values. I think history matters to our understanding of our society. I think history matters in epistemological issues. I think it matters all over the place. And that's why I regret that often that, that Kuhn's wonderful promise of, a of some sort of marriage between history and philosophy of science um, has been, you know, a pretty rocky marriage, if one's honest about it. Um, but uh, um, so I think history is immensely important. With respect to the ethical project, I think that many people are, uh, as you said originally, uh, very worried about talk of values. And I think that those sorts of worries would be um, addressed and we would understand more clearly how to talk about values if we, um, if we had a clearer view of the history of the ethical project. So last year, after 25 years of working on it, I, I, wrote, I published my book on ethics, the ethical project, in which I basically argue that there's a certain kind of narrative that one can construct for the history of our ethical project, and that it has profound consequences for the ways in which we think about ethics. That ethics is a is a human construction; it's never finished. It's a kind of technology that originates in our, our need to get along with one another. That it's a, a conversation in which all have to be present. You can see the second chapter is there because it's an articulation in the context this book of themes that are really uh, important to my general approach, but also because I think this is a place in which one really can see how to get on with the business of, of talking seriously about values and then talking seriously about democratic values and integrating <laughs> scientific <laughs> Will we need to repeat? Uh, no, no, it's okay. It, well, maybe the last part about integrating. <laughs> that, that's okay. There's a lot of cats and dogs um, who join the party at, in the new book network. My cat as well. Sometimes will meow her opinions. Um, so <laughs> it's okay. Um, so I think um, you were saying about the need to integrate. Just maybe just repeating the last part you just said. The ethical values us. Uh, science and, and democratic values and so forth. I mean, it, it seems to me that the, that, that, chapter's, that chapter is basically a precedent of some things I say in the ethical project, and that material is profoundly necessary for doing the sorts of things I want to do. Absolutely. And, and one of the points that you make here that comes up later on um, for listeners, and then I'll sort of um, move us um, through, is an aspect of this ethical project um, that emphasizes the importance of mirroring others and the importance more broadly of sympathy um, 
I don't know if you I, if you put it in those terms in this chapter, but you do put it in those terms later in um, being a crucial part of how we of really our ethical system, right? Yeah. Okay. So roughly, here's here's the view. Um, we have certain kinds of capacities for responding to one another, um, which probably we've shared we share with our, our remote ancestors and with our cousins. Um, all of us can, on occasion, respond to another and do things that um, that work in the direction of cooperation with that other. But those, those capacities make it possible to have the sort of social lives that humans have always had, which is life in small groups with uh, others, different sexes, different ages, and so forth. Chimpanzees, bonobos have that too. Mm-hmm. But those capacities are limited, and the limitations give rise to trouble. Mm-hmm. And we have escaped what is, I think, an evolutionary dead end for others, in that we've found ways of, of responding to one another that go beyond that, and, they, and those are inter- integrated with our ethical discussions. Normative guidance, the ability to regulate our conduct and to talk with one another about the ways of regulation is absolutely crucial to the ability of humans to cooperate on much broader scales, to live in much bigger societies, etc. So um, this is, I mean, I I like to put this by saying, you know, we're altruists, so we've always been able to live as social animals. We're limited altruists, so we haven't been able to live easily as social animals. Mm -hmm. We overcame some of those limitations by developing (coughs) ethical practices. That's okay. (laughs) Speaking of social animals... Yeah. Right. Thank you so much. So the after sort of setting this stage and um, giving us some foundations for talking about values in general and how these are going to be central um, to the further elaboration of the theory and the suggestions for perhaps manifesting um, positive uh, change from understanding that theory, um, you lead us into a discussion of um, democracy. Right. And democratic values in particular, you've already said um, a little bit about and we've, we've talked a little bit about um, democracy as being more than sort of just people with ink on their hands from going into the, the polls and voting. Um, and you've talked a little bit about the centrality of Dewey um, for shaping um, y- your thoughts about this. Um, part of one of the interesting things about this chapter in particular is that you make a case for um, the real problem of unidentified or unidentifiable oppression. This seems to be very important to the elaboration of this um, and for the justification of creating a system of public knowledge in order to undermine the existence and promulgation of or propagation of unidentifiable and unidentified oppression. Can you say a little bit about that? Absolutely. One of my favorite themes, <laughs> so I'd love to. Um, yeah, I mean, there are lots of occasions in which people's lives are, are cramped and sometimes twisted and distorted, and they have no idea where it's coming from. Um, they don't think of themselves as, as it were, suffering any kind of political oppression. And yet, you know... The fact that they have no schools to go to or dangerous schools to go to or, um, or educationally inadequate schools to go to, the fact that they have no um, protections against various kinds of health risks, those they things, they just, they just don't trace those as, um, as problems of oppression. Democracy, I think, was a wonderful, historically, a wonderful solution to a certain kind of problem problem of some heavy-handed being who was, who was going around chopping people's heads off or, or taxing them to death or, or uh, interfering in all sorts of rather obvious ways in their lives. So if you've got a being like that and you've got the ability to, um, as it were, express the public will at the polls, then you've got a device that counters that problem. What dem- democracy isn't perfect with respect to that. I'm living in Germany at the moment, and the case of Germany in the 1920s and 30s is a sobering reminder that even in a democratic society, you may fail to see um, the dangers inherent in a certain form of tyranny. But it's 
it's been, I think, historically a pretty good solution to that problem. But in complex modern societies, there are all sorts of policies which are unsurveyable, sometimes are even unsurveyable by the people who put them into effect, that have huge consequences for the, um, for the course of people's lives. And those people have no sense of what it is that's confining them and how it's coming about. And they go to the polls and they vote, and they vote blindly mm-hmm. because they can't see what, what is, as it were, interfering with their lives the most. And that's the difficulty, I think, of much contemporary democracy. It's exemplified in things like the climate change debate. Mm-hmm. Um, it's exemplified also in some, certain sorts of uh, healthcare debates, biotechnology debates, and so forth. This is in some ways a more general problem than I portray it in the book. I mean, there's a sense in which, I'm, in this chapter, I'm working my way towards a Deweyan vision of democracy as a work of progress in progress that might be articulated across a far broader field than I actually, uh, I actually deal with in the book. But the thought is that, that a system of public knowledge that can identify these kinds of difficulties is absolutely crucial for the health of a democracy. Otherwise, people's preferences will have nothing to do with what they really want, and they'll end up voting for candidates um, whose actions will be directly contrary to what, what they hope to achieve. I mean, we can see this happening in all sorts of ways in many countries at the moment, but perhaps nowhere so clearly as in the United States. And I think one of, even though no single book can possibly give a fully elaborated account of all of the ways in which, um, or all of the consequences and all of the ways that um, any of these individual components of the theory might be elaborated, one of the great things about this is that it's drawing in um, readers who are interested in science, who are interested in science policy, who are interested in science studies and may not realize that a component of what they might be interested in is, you know, this problem of democratic values, which actually has a much wider set of literature that then you can go off to. So I don't think it doesn't read at all as if it's trying to give, you know, every explanation possible or to say everything it's possible to say, but it at least brings it into the discussion in a way that I think is very productive. (laughs) Well, it's an attempt to fuse some themes in science studies with certain kind of social epistemology and with some very deep problems in political philosophy, political theory. Um, and those, in both cases, those problems are really hard and really wide-ranging. And I wish that my fellow philosophers would spend more time and less time on some of the activities they actually <laughs> engage well, so one of the, as we move um, toward, so the way the book is, um, or the way the architecture of the book is set up for listeners, there are four chapters that set out sort of the basic foundations of this idea. And then chapters five through eight um, sort of offer it an elaboration of a theory that works from these basic premises that's yep. then... Um, uh, sort of manifest in or embodied in particular examples of how that theory might inform specific debates in the final chapter in chapter nine. Um, so one of the things that you talk about in chapter four is sort of perhaps the um, the last of these foundation chapters is the importance of something that we've talked about very briefly before, which is the importance of contingency. And this is a place, again, where um, having a historical sensibility or a sensibility of the contingent nature of the development here of systems of public knowledge is going to be crucial for how you want us to think about how then to um, consider science in a democratic society. Can you speak a little bit about um, the importance of contingency? Because, again, this seems to be a, a point of a crucial point of intersection for or a point of conversation potentially for historians and philosophers. Yeah, I actually think there's a general point. It, it, it holds not only of the system of scientific inquiry, but it's of lots of other institutions. Right. that They, they evolve, uh, if you like, sort of in response to particular demands of the, the challenges of the environment. Um, particular things. I mean, this is something the science studies tradition, I think, has seen very, very clearly for a long time, and it's taken me a while to appreciate the ways in which um, 
the kind of knowledge seeking that is done in a particular era, era is immensely responsive to all sorts of things of other parts of the of, of life and the, the world at the time. And the result is that you know that you don't have any kind of planning of these institutions. They just evolve rather haphazardly, and then they can get in one another's way. There can be all sorts of friction uh, between one institution and another. I think one of the one of the frictions we're seeing at the moment uh, is between the institution of, of scientific investigation and our economic institutions. So our economic institutions have, have evolved really sort of haphazardly in response to various kinds of crises that have occurred, in response to a particular kind of uh, social experiment that was carried out in some regions of the world and allegedly faced a crashing defeat in around 1989, with the result that an, another a certain version of the economic institutions that were around before has become highly dominant. That then gives rise to all sorts of constraints on large numbers of other sectors of human life, education uh, and on um, and on science. And we can see we can see these things as it were shaping shaping one another during the course of the last century, the last twenty years. And all of that is in a certain sense an irrational process. And that one of the great tasks of philosophy, I think, um, and uh, I think all sorts of thinkers have seen this. I think Marx saw it. I think um, I think Foucault saw it. I think Dewey saw it. Is actually to reflect on this, to reflect on the ways in which these contingent decisions find them, express themselves, and cause really deep difficulties in the circumstances of subsequent life. Uh, and what I'm concerned with here, of course, is the way in which the origins and development of a system of public knowledge um, really influence that system under completely different conditions. And I'm very worried, of course, that the that what I call this sort of ideal of disinterested curiosity, detachment from the projects of society, runs through contemporary scientists' self-understandings and their resistance to certain kinds of initiatives that might be beneficial for the broader health of uh, democratic society. This is actually something that I wanted to, this gets us right into something I wanted to ask you about and right into sort of the meat of your uh, elaboration of this theory. Um, how much, you, you talk about this in the book, but would you say a little about um, how much ought the research agenda of scientists be shaped by or be defined by public um, interest or practical problems of potentially public concern? So how much ought that play a role? Well, I think, I mean, that's a very hard question to ask, to answer in general. I think there are places where we can see very clearly that the research that is done is not representative of the needs of human beings. It's most most evident in disease research, Mm -hmm. where a large number of people's interests are completely neglected. I mean, there's uh, the, the market is coming in and, and saying, "Well, okay, um, let's have let's have research into things that the affluent want and that the affluent are prepared to pay for." So we'll have diet pills, mm-hmm. uh, we'll have various skin creams, etc., etc., etc. What about the infectious diseases that affect the world, world's poor? Well, the world's poor don't pay. Tough. The world's poor don't get the things that they need for problems. Far more um, uh, debilitating, far more damaging, have far higher rates of mortality. I mean, that's a place in which you can really see the mismatch between the research agenda and um, and human needs. But I think, in more subtle forms, that's actually in a lot of places. And um, because scientists don't want, don't like the idea of direct research, and I think it's worth Taking, taking their doubts into account insofar as those doubts are grounded in track records of, of failure. 
there are going to be, I mean, one can look systematically at cases in which people have attempted to direct research in various ways and try to learn some things about the failures of directed research and also about ways in which the research might be profitably directed and ways in which it's not. This isn't really any kind of blank check for directing research. It's more um, a matter of stock taking about uh, I, I mean, it's a call for taking stock of what opportunities the existing state of science affords us for making uh, further progress in various kinds of arenas, um, and what kinds of needs people have, and what we can learn from the historical record, again, history matters, about ways of responding to human needs. I mean, I'm quite open to the suggestion that certain a certain amount of autonomy might prove to be very valuable for some individual scientists. If the historical record would show, for example, that it's a good idea to let people who have particular hunches and a track record of brilliant initiatives um, just do what they want to do. Scrap those forms on which you have to fill out what you know, you know how how you're what you're going to do contributes to something. So these people, you know, just let them do what they want to do. That that's actually itself a perfectly pragmatic decision principle in line with the democratic things that, that I, I'm suggesting. But it's this idea that that a kind of blanket autonomy for the scientists is a good thing that seems to me to need questioning and need thinking. So there's the, the, the account of how the, you, you mesh the concerns of, the, um, of this, the broader society with the concerns of the, or the interests of the individual is a difficult and delicate one, and it's not to be settled a priori by saying, you know, well, we're just going to draw up a list of government priorities and everybody's going to do it, nor equally by saying, well, we're going to let the scientific community decide. This is... You know, the, the book makes you know, concrete proposals about how to do this. Absolutely. And and part of those proposals um, get at the importance of learning and mutual learning. And so it's not just that um, yeah. scientists are learning from or the, the research agendas of scientists might learn from more engagement with a kind of the public understanding of what they're doing and public concerns. But it's not the case that we should understand public understanding and public concerns to be something that's static and just out there. Yeah. And in fact, one of the really interesting things that you're suggesting here are ways and at various levels. And I want to ask you about two of them for. Um, I just say something about, about just interrupt you a second. I mean, course, I think there are, there are cases in which this mutual learning has gone on. I mean, the um, Steve Epstein has this lovely book about how AIDS activists and the scientists doing AIDS research learn from one another. Right. Um, that's that's a beautiful example of how this how this can work. And it would be nice if we could make that happen on a much broader scale, I think. Right. And and one of the things, um, sort of, there are a couple of suggestions that you have here that are, I found very compelling and very interesting. And I'd like to talk with you about that. And this is learning on the other end of things. And so um, in as a way to sort of help the transmission of scientific if transmission is the right metaphor, the transmission of scientific um, information, data, et cetera, et cetera, whatever you want to put in there, to a public to sort of help the public make a more informed, um, uh, sort of have more informed engagement with the kinds of debates about science and democracy that we want to sort of aim for. And I should also say as a footnote to listeners that um, the, the public is not taken for granted here as a static concept. You also talk a lot about the sort of the multiplicity of that. And so it's, we're not assuming um, the public is one kind of thing. Um, but in order to affect that kind of greater understanding, you suggest um, a system whereby small groups of citizens would be tutored yeah. um, in particular areas of scientific inquiry. And you also suggest a revision of the science curricula in schools. Yeah. Both of these I found very interesting um, suggestions. Can you say a little bit about both or either one of these? Yeah, I mean, when I wrote Science, Truth, and Democracy, I, I had this sort of um, philosopher's view. Uh, I was going to say, well, here's an ideal. 
I leave it to the political scientists and the sociologists to figure out how to implement this ideal to the extent it can be implemented. Um, along the way, I just became more and more dissatisfied with that. I don't think the philosophers could just get off these as that. So I, I, I thought, well, is this something that even has a chance of being implementable? And I started looking at some of the work that had been done, and I was being very impressed by the work of the Stanford political scientist James Fishkin, um, mm. who's run these um, these sort of deliberative uh, citizen groups. Um, and it does seem to me that I mean he's had some remarkable successes. He's also had some some issues on which were not so successful. And it seems to me that his problem in a certain sense, is how do we do this? And he has the expertise on that. What I want to do in the book is say, really, there are places that have not been recognized at which something like this needs to be done. But this is one way of getting communication. If you think that trust, the trust with between the public, the broader public, outsiders, and the scientific community is threatened or even breaking down in some areas, then there are really two ways to go, which is one is to have you know, huge educational effort so that the, the public can come to see that certain parts, at least possibly all of what the scientists are is well justified. So that's, you might, you might think of that as the movement from science out. And then there's the movement from the public in. And the Pushkin way is to, as it were, invite some people into the kitchen to see how the meal is cooked, or to invite some people backstage to see how the actors are prepared and made up and so forth. And I think, with respect to some issues, they're so urgent, global warming, obviously, um, that we can't wait for a massive transmission of information effort from the scientific community out. Um, this is probably the best way to make um, further progress in restoring trust between science and the public. Um, and you know, getting so the, the role of the group is really to learn, to appraise, to criticize, to be exposed to debate, debate and then to come back and say, well, look, on, on some of these areas, at least we're convinced that the community has gotten things right. And they've got to have sufficient standing. I mean, they mustn't be seen as having been indoctrinated, which makes for a very delicate problem that serves as representatives of the public. But it seems to me that's a possible direction which one could go. For the education stuff, I think we do things very, very badly. And, I, and by we, I don't just mean American schools. I think that in general, there's a lot of science education that turns a lot of people off science for life, and they become more and more they become more and more detached from the information they need. Mm-hmm. There's a certain kind of scientific education that's really necessary if students are going to find out whether science is for them, and probably everybody should go through that at some stage. But when it's become obvious to somebody, maybe at the age of 15, maybe maybe even earlier than that, maybe a bit later than that, that what they're not going to do is become a research scientist. Then forcing them to memorize you know, the periodic table or the list of amino acids or to solve some problem using um, Ohm's law with electrical circuits is just counterproductive. What you want them to do is... Just equivalent to what you want students to do when you teach them how to read a historical text or how to read a literary text. You want them to, to be interested in and excited by and um, able to read scientific texts. And so I see the possibility of a co-evolution of an educational program focused on scientific literacy and then perhaps a new sort of journalism which is sometimes prefigured by some of the most you know, wonderful exponents of science. And in the last decades, there have been some wonderful exponents. I mean, Steve Gould, Ed Wilson, Richard Dawkins, Carl Sagan, Brian Green, um, Olivia Judson, Horace Judson. It goes on and on and on. This you know, good list of, of terrific people. Um, and, you know, you could have then 
possibility of people having enough grasp of various kinds of basic scientific concepts that they could throughout their lives keep in touch with what's being found out about the issues that matter to all of us and the discoveries that are being made. That's a long-term project. It won't solve our immediate problems, which is why I suggest the supplementation with the, the, as it were, the citizens being taken behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. I think one of, um, just as a kind of anecdote, I was recently reading about a project by an ed school, education school professor in Israel who was trying to develop a science curriculum for lower schools that integrated notions of local cultures of science into the curriculum by um, sort of uh, basically... Now, this is potentially problematic because it encourages thinking of traditions of science as being um, identifiable by nation states, right? But he's trying to incorporate ideas of sort of local creation of scientific knowledge, you know, science broadly conceived here, into undergrad, uh, not undergraduate, um, lower school education in science and supposedly having good luck with it. So it's another very interesting. Well, I mean, I think that I think actually students can learn a lot about science from learning things in the history of science. Yeah. Um, I mean, there are all sorts of ways in which I think we could be far more imaginative in teaching people science than we are. But there's far too much memorization focus and far too much um, toy problem focus for students who've already given up on the thought that that this is going to be their, their path through life. Mm-hmm. And I mean, some, um, and then I'll, I'll back off from this, but um, some areas of scientific inquiry are essentially historical disciplines, right, in a way. I mean, broadly conceived, telling stories about uh, things, uh, objects or individuals in the past. Right? Yeah. I mean, this is yeah. evolutionary um, science um, in some form. But, well, yes. Um, and I don't, I don't mean that as mere stories, yeah. right? I don't, yeah. I don't at all no, mean right, that. Right. No, no, no. Mm-hmm. But there are, there are very good and well-founded accounts of various kinds of evolution processes. That's right. right. Absolutely. Well, Philip, we have, there's so much more that we could talk about here. We've sort of blitzed through uh, many of the last chapters. Um, for listeners who haven't had a chance to read it, I mean, there's um, there are really fascinating discussions here of um, sort of the, the question of whether um, scientists should or should not be made to do what's ethically required of them. There are discussions of the role of sort of uh, non-scientists in the certification of science, there's a really interesting discussion of what, you know, philosophers of science have to do professionally with all of this. And there's a really wonderful um, chapter at the end that gives very concrete examples of ways in which um, these issues play out and ways in which the theory that you're uh, proposing here might inform the way we think about these areas. Is there anything in particular or maybe um, multiple things that we haven't had a chance to talk about that you want to make sure to mention for listeners who may not yet have had a chance to read the book? Um, one thing I would say is that I think there are three different contexts in which the relation between which science and society needs to be explored. One is in the, uh, in the context when the agenda of questions is being set. Another is in the is in the um, the context in which things are being certified. I think this is really a wonderful issue for philosophers to explore because certification is a social process, and um, there are all sorts of things that we want the certification to be reliable. We also want it to be seen to be reliable, and that's and that causes all sorts of difficulties. And then there are these problems of transmission. I mean, I think one of the great problems for our age. We're washing, in a certain sense, in information, is to set up channels so that information can flow where it's needed, and that's that's really hard. Then there are questions about cooperation within science and the role of dissent within science. These are all, I think, fascinating um, topics that that have a real bearing on how the sciences are used in in our lives. Uh, the book sprawls into, I'm afraid, it sprawls off into issues about democracy generally, and I, at some point, I shall have to, I shall have to do, I shall have to attend to that. 
<laughs> oh, it's it's wonderful, and it's um, there's this is also a book that I know I at least will be assigning um, to students in the future in all kinds of courses, and so it's a very teachable book as well. It's um, which is not um, often the case when you are looking at a philosophy of science book. I mean, I can imagine assigning this to advanced undergraduates even. Um, so I hope this is also widely assigned um, in classrooms. But so now that sorry, I hope so too. <laughs> so, what are you working on now? What's what are you most sort of passionately engaged with now that this book is out? And it, it's nearly an attempt to go beyond this book and also the ethical project. But I'm really interested in this, these issues about how um, various kinds of social institutions are. Uh, potentially in conflict with one another. That's a kind of generalization of the theme that I'm taking up in science and democratic society. And I'm very interested in ways of thinking about the ethical ideals um, and the ideas of ethical conversation that I develop in the ethical project might be developed further and made more concrete. And so I'm, I've been spending this year in Berlin thinking in general about these issues and trying to develop a, um, a Deweyan pragmatism for the 21st century. And I have the structure, I think, in my head, but it'll take me probably a decade to work it all out. Um, there's a lot that I need to know and I need, I need to uh, explore. But, uh, but these, it has connections with, uh, with the things that are, that are in science and democratic society as well as in the ethics. I'm giving a sort of kind of progress report, have a collection coming out in the fall um, called Preludes to Pragmatism, which gives some sort of preliminary um, ideas about direction and, 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 and taking off from these where I've been. But the full scale thing will take me a long time. As I said, I'm a very slow learner. <laughs> well, it's well worth it, um, judging from this book. Um, so thank you so much for making the time to talk with us today, Philip, and best of luck with your current project. Well, thank you. Uh, I've enjoyed talking to you. You too. You've been listening to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next time.